We're going to talk, you know what, I've been thinking about this for a long time, that, um, that um, song, Reckless Love. I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs right now. And um, so I was thinking about that word reckless, and I wanted to do a sermon called Reckless Love. And for me, the word reckless, and I'm sure the, the person didn't mean it this way, but for me, the term reckless sometimes can connotate unwise or not thinking about it or something like that. And so I like the word re- relentless better. And relentless even can have a negative connotation, but I like the l- word relentless. And if you look at 1 Kings 8.23, this is in the message. The verse is, O God, God of Israel, there is no God like you in the skies above or on earth below who unswervingly keeps covenant with his servants and relentlessly loves them. And I like the word relentless Oh, I did the definition of it. The definition of relentless is showing or promising no abatement of severity, intensity, strength, or pace. Relentless pressure is, was the example. And um, I thought if we're going to talk about kingdom realities and stuff like that, we have to know the foundational principles of the kingdom that we live in. Just like what makes the United States different than, say, Britain. We talked about this before. Who's been watching The Crown? Anyone watch The Crown? Dude. All two seasons? Is that not fantastic? Pardon me? Is it not fantastic? It's, fa- it's fantastic. At first when I watched it, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know about this, but it really, it's yeah. very well done. The Crown is about um, the life of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, how she comes, how she comes to the throne, and then all of the um, you know, drama and whatever that involved with being Royalty. What? It's the 1940s, 40s all the way to modern era. Modern. Yeah, because she's still living. So it's it's about and it, and the, what it's really about is the monarchy and how they relate to the um, the elected officials in their country. They're a constitutional monarchy, so they have a different system of government than what we have. We are a democracy. A plus. And so we have some foundational principles in the, of the United States. What are some foundational documents that we have? And Bill of Rights, Second Amendment, right? Things like that that are, that are foundational to the way we as United States citizens live in, in the world, right? We live from a place of we have the right to vote and we have certain inalienable rights because that's what's been bred into us, so to speak, living in the United States, right? So my point is, if we're going to live in the kingdom, we have to know the foundational documents, principles, what the kingdom is built on and how it's different than other kingdoms, say the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the world or things like that. How is the United States different from other countries? How is the spiritual, our spiritual kingdom different from other realities? And so that's why I want to talk about the relentless love of God, because for me, Love is a foundational principle that the kingdom is built on. And we need to define what kind of love that is, what it looks like, and we need to come into agreement with it. Eh. And that might be something we need to like look at our hearts and see if we're in agreement with God's kind of love. So we're going to look at this parable. We're going to look in the um, book of Luke. It's, um, it's a it's three parables together that kind of form one central theme. And it's this par- these parables of lost things, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Now, um, Luke 
is um, the disciple who likes to show how, God, how Christ is always with the downtrodden. He's always with the person who's um, been overlooked. He, Luke emphasizes women, Gentiles, the poor, that kind of thing, more than any other um, disciple writing the Gospels. Luke likes to emphasize the, the people that are um, misfits of society. And so we might find, we find this, one of the stories in Matthew, but these three in Luke are important, okay? So I'm going to start out by reading in the, the um, parables from the Message Bible, because I love it so much. Chapter, Luke 15. Luke 15. Many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. This raised concerns with the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law. Indignant, they grumbled and complained, saying, Look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and welcomes them all, all to come to him. In response, Jesus gave them this illustration. So Jesus, right now we know, he's responding, this parable. And let's start out with what is a parable. Chip Philandra, give him a hand clap for coming in late. Nice. And let's start out with a little context first of all. In Greek, parable means to be set aside. It's a word picture. It's the way that um, a lot of people taught in this, this time period. You remember that a lot of teaching and a lot of the scriptures was an oral tradition, and so telling stories helped to portray um, uh, deeper meaning. And a lot of times when you tell a word picture, you tell a story through a word picture, you get the feelings and you, you can relate to it a lot more. Does that make sense? So Jesus starts out by telling this parable. And remember now, he is responding to the Pharisees, okay, the religious leaders of the time. There once was a shepherd with a hundred lambs, but one of his lambs wandered away and was lost. So the shepherd left the 99 lambs out in the open field and searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb. He didn't stop until he finally found it. With exuberant joy, he raised it up and placed it on his shoulders, carrying it back with cheerful delight. Returning home, he called all his friends and neighbors together and said, let's have a party. Come and celebrate with me the return of my lost lamb. It wandered away, but I found it and brought it home. Jesus continued, in the same way, there will be a glorious celebration in heaven over the rescue of one lost sinner who repents, comes back home, and returns to the fold, more so than for all the righteous people who never strayed away. So that's the parable of the lost lamb. Parable of the lost coin. Jesus gave them another parable. There was once a woman who had ten valuable silver coins. When she lost one of them, she swept her entire house, diligently searching every corner of her house for that one lost coin. When she finally found it, she gathered all her friends and neighbors for a celebration, telling them, Come and celebrate with me. I have lost my precious silver coin, but now I found it. That's what the way God responds. Every time one lost sinner repents and turns to him, he says to all his angel, Let's have a joyous celebration for the one who is lost I have found. The loving father. Then Jesus said, Once there was a father with two sons. This is a familiar one to all of us, right? The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. 
He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing and he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees. So the young son set off for home. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar. And great compassion welled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. He swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. The father interrupted him and said, Son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, Quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I will place it on his shoulders. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger. And bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast. Sorry, I don't mean to spit on you. And celebrate. For this beloved son of mine was once dead, but now he's alive again. Once he was lost, but now he is found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. And we'll just pause right there. That's the one we're super familiar with, right? And that's the one we all like to reference because that has to do with someone coming to their senses, right? It has a justice aspect to it. And we all like justice, don't we? We all like to point out right and wrong, and this guy was wrong, and he came to his senses, and now he gets to have a reward because he came to his senses. And that would be a fantastic way to think, except it's not correct, because it's one of three parables. It's not the only parable about God's love. It's one of three. And you have to take all three of those together to get the full picture of what Jesus is saying. We can't camp on the prodigal son one, even though we want to. We have to look at all three. So we're going to look at all three of them together and see what we can glean out of what Jesus is saying about how God loves people. God loves sinners. Okay? Are you all with me? Excellent. Let's start out by saying this. One thing, um, and Chris and I, for whatever reason, have been on some weird um, Middle East movie binge. We saw the um, movie Beirut, which was pretty good, didn't you think? You were there. You, did you like it? Yeah, and then we went home and watched Zero Dark Thirty. I don't know why. So we had this overload of um, you know, Middle Eastern culture kind of thing. But it's interesting because, and I learned this when I was in seminary too, the Middle Eastern culture is driven by an honor-shame system. We see that a lot in honor killings when um, wives are killed by their husbands or, or women are killed in the Middle East or in that culture because they've somehow brought dishonor to um, the family or they haven't obeyed or whatever. And back then in the Jewish culture, it was also an honor-shame system. Everything was driven by honor or driven by shame, by trying to avoid shame. That's, and even kind of that honor-shame system, even kind of 
um, helped push the Jewish people into a caste system based on how much honor they had or how shameful, for example, being an unclean person. You were shame, it was shameful to be unclean. The woman who had the issue of blood, it was, she should not have been out in public. She was unclean, right? Um, a leper was unclean. There are all kinds of rules that would make you unclean in their society, which would bring you shame, right? And so that we can see, therefore, why it's easy to slip into a type of legalism to bring yourself holiness. If you're dealing with an honor-shame society, that one of the ways to bring honor to yourself is to rigidly obey a formula or rigidly obey rules. So you can see why the Pharisees and the Sadducees slipped into that because they were trying to conform to this honor-shame paradigm that everyone was living in. The really interesting thing is that that's not God's paradigm at all. That's not God's paradigm at all. That's why when Jesus was born, he, what does the Bible says? Um, he used the foolish things to shame the wise. Is that the right words? Correct me if I'm wrong. My point is, Jesus is like, I'm not playing by the world's rules. I'm going to play by God's rule. And God doesn't play by an honor shame. Listen, that's the most important thing. If you get out of this, that's the most important thing you can get a hold of tonight, is God does not adhere to an honor-shame paradigm in society. That is not what he adheres to at all. He doesn't give a fig for that. that. You need to write that down and you need to take it home. That needs to go deep down into your heart. There is not one thing you can do. Shame does not come from God. Shame is not God's, even in God's vocabulary. Shame is always from the enemy. Always from the enemy. Shame is different from conviction. It's even different sometimes from feeling guilty. Shame is never from God. Do you guys got that? Okay. I want to make sure. Well, here's our question. We know that the Jewish people operated that way, and we see how some Arab cultures or Middle Eastern cultures, or however you want to say that, still, uh, still operate that way. Do we operate in an honor-shame paradigm, either in society or with ourselves? And I'll just throw it out to you guys for any answers. Do you guys, does that, just do we resonate in society with any kind of honor-shame paradigm? Not as much as we used to. Okay. How did we used to? Tell me how we used to. Okay. 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 All right. Anything else? Pardon me. Everybody likes to play the blame game. How about how about this? Um, I lost my job. Someone who's unemployed. Shame. If you make if you make a lot of money, honor. If you're um successful, how about Hollywood actress or actor, honor. How about uh, you lose a business? Shame? You get pregnant out of wedlock? Shame? I think it's still there. Yeah. I, still, I think we still do operate that. Not, not as much embedded into our legal system the way that it was in back then, but I still think, it's, I still think it is here. I still think that it, there's elements of it. That's just my opinion. So let's talk about the similarities of these parables. The fir- number one, first similarity is the object or person is lost. 
they're lost. They represent unsaved people. The lamb, the coin, and the sun represent different types of unsaved people. The second thing, the similarity, is they're all owned by somebody. Even a son belongs to his father. Um, and so the lamb belongs to the shepherd, the coin belongs to the woman, the son even legally belongs to the father back in that culture. They all remained valuable even though they were lost. Did you like that one, Nathan? Thank you. They were all valuable even though they were lost. Right, right. So what we feel about ourselves has nothing to do with our true value, right? Because these things were lost, and a coin, and I'll go into this a little bit more, a coin doesn't even know it's lost because it's inanimate. No, seriously. I mean, this is important to think about the different qualities of these lost things. A coin doesn't even know it's lost. It's an inanimate object, but yet it's still valuable. So we're going to go on. The owner... Never, the other owner having other found things, even though it had 99 lambs and nine other coins and another son, never turned his focus from recovering what was lost. The focus is on the love of the owner for the lost object. So the focus of these parables is how much God loves these lost objects. These, the, they represent sinners, how much God loves sinners, different types of sinners. Rejoicing over recovery. So the sixth thing is, there's always rejoicing over recovery. I want to read to you a story. Let's see if I find it here. It's a, and I can't read it, I'll just tell you the story. Here it is. It's about a doll named Pandy. Hold on, I've got to find it for you. Her name was Pandy. <laughs> this is John Ortberg, Love Beyond Reason. Her name was Pandy. She had lost a good deal of her hair, one of her arms was missing, and generally speaking, she'd had the stuffing knocked out of her. She's my sister Barbie's favorite doll. She hadn't always looked like this. She had been a personally she had been personally selected she had been a personally selected Christmas gift by a cherished aunt who had traveled to a great department store in faraway Chicago to find her. Her face and hands were made of some kind of rubber or plastic, so they looked real, but her body was stuffed with rags to feel soft and squeezable like a real baby. When my aunt looked in the display window at Marshall Fields and found Pandy, she knew she had found something very good. When Pandy was young and a looker, Barbie loved her. She loved her with a love that was too strong for Pandy's own good. When Barbie went to bed at night, Pandy lay next to her. When Barbie had lunch, Pandy ate beside her at the table. When Barbie could get away with it, Pandy took a bath with her. Barbie's love for that doll was, from Pandy's point of view, pretty nearly a fatal attraction. By the time I knew Pandy, she was not a particularly attractive doll. In fact, to tell the truth, she was a mess. She was no longer a very valuable doll. I'm not sure we could have given her away. But for reasons that no one could quite figure out in the way that kids sometimes do, my sister Barbie loved that little rag doll still. She loved her as strongly in the days of Pandy's raggedness as she had ever had in her days of great beauty. Other dolls came and went. Pandy was family. Love Barbie, love her rag doll. It was a package deal. Once we took a vacation from our home in Rockford, Illinois to Canada. 
We had returned almost all the way home when we realized at the Illinois border that Pandy had not come back with us. She had remained behind at the hotel in Canada. No other option was thinkable. My father turned the car around and we drove from Illinois all the way back to Canada. We were a devoted family. Not a particularly bright family, perhaps, but <laughs> devoted. We rushed into the hotel and checked with the desk clerk in the lobby. No pandy. We ran back up to our room. No pandy. We ran downstairs and found the laundry room. Pandy was there, wrapped up in the sheets, about to be washed to death. The measure of my sister's love for that doll was that she would travel all the way to a distant country to save her. The years passed and my sister grew up. She outgrew Pandy. She traded her in for a boyfriend named Andy, who oddly enough was even less attractive than the doll Pandy. Pandy had not been much of a bargain for a long while, and by now the only logical thing left to do was to toss her out. But this my mother could not bring herself to do. She held Pandy one last time, wrapped her with exquisite care in some tissue, placed her in a box, and stored her in the attic for 20 years. When I was growing up, I had all kinds of casual playthings and stuffed animals. My mother didn't save any of them, but she saved Pandy. Want to guess why? The nature of my sister's love is what made Pandy so valuable. Barbie loved that little doll with a kind of love that made the doll precious to anyone who loved Barbie. All those tears and hugs and secrets got mixed in with the rags somehow. If you loved Barbie, you just naturally loved Pandy too. More years passed. My sister got married, not to Andy, and moved far away. She had three children, the last of whom was a little girl named Courtney, who soon reached the age where she wanted a doll. No other option was thinkable. Barbie went back to Rockford, back to the attic, and dragged out the box. By this time, though, Pandy was more rag than a doll. So my sister took her to a doll hospital in California, there really is such a place, and had her go through reconstructive surgery. Pandy was given a facelift or liposuction or whatever it is they do for dolls, until after 30 years, Pandy became once again as beautiful on the outside as she had always been in the eyes of the one who had loved her. I'm not sure she looked any better to Barbie, but now it was possible for others to view what Barbie had always seen in her. When Pandy was young, Barbie loved her. She celebrated her beauty. When Pandy was old and ragged, Barbie loved her still. Now she did not simply love Pandy because Pandy was beautiful. Get ready. She loved her with a kind of love that made Pandy beautiful. I got to say that again. When Pandy was young, Barbie loved her. She celebrated her beauty. When Pandy was old and ragged, Barbie loved her still. Now, she did not simply love Pandy because Pandy was beautiful. She loved her with a kind of love that made Pandy beautiful. This is what I'm talking about right here. This is the love of God that we have to somehow get a hold of if we're going to change this world. Because my friends, people are looking for that kind of love. They do not want a bunch of picket signs that says they're going to hell because they're gay. Seriously. They don't want condemnation and shame. That's not our job anyway. They want, the, they want to see the kind of love flow through us from God that says, we love you because God loves you. And he says, you are beautiful. God's love says you're beautiful. And we partner with God and we have his heart and we see that beauty inside of you. 
That's what I'm talking about, you guys. And we got to have a whole paradigm shift. We got to come out of the shame, honor thing. We got to come out of it. It's got to come out in every facet of our life. We can't compartmentalize it for church and then decide at the ballot box we're going to vote differently or whatever. Now, I'm not saying we don't have boundaries, and we'll talk about that later, okay? I'm not saying there's not right or wrong. But what I'm saying is we've got to come from the heart of God when we deal with people, all right? Not from rules and regulations, shame and honor, all right? Otherwise, we are the Pharisees that, that Jesus is talking to. It's, it's us he's talking to instead of being disciples and saying, how are we loving people in their lostness? Because God values them because he loves them. It's his love that makes them beautiful, just like that story. You guys got that? All right. It's huge. All right. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son have all this in common. They all belonged to their owner. None of these three parables describe a person searching for something that was not theirs in the first place, but rather they all describe the owner's tireless desire to bring that which was already theirs back where it belongs. Now let's just do, dig a little deeper here. The, um, this is kind of fun. When we look at the parables, we go from 1 out of 99, 1 to 10, 1 to 2. So the, the parables go from kind of like um, descending it, Ascending importance, descending importance, more important, okay? So sheep were less important than a coin, was less important than a son. So he's, he's moving his story along to show these things. Now, there was, it would not normally be something where a, where a shepherd would leave 99 um, sheep out in a field unattended by themselves and go off and find one lamb that was lost. Because usually 99 sheep are more valuable than, than the one sheep that is lost. But this is a picture where the shepherd was so concerned for that one lamb that he left the 99 by themselves, unattended, if you will, even though they were more valuable than just one lamb, and he went off to get the one lamb that was lost. The lamb, the sheep, usually represents um, a person because sheep are <laughs> stupid and dumb. I guess. They, they're not smart animals, okay? They, they um, are easily, they easily drift away. They have to be taken care of. They've got to be led around. You've got to make sure they're not picked off by wolves, okay? They're not smart animals, all right? So sheep, in this case, usually represent a foolish person who's wandered away, okay? Foolishness is sometimes what they talk about the, the lamb representing. Someone who's maybe been um, lured away by something in the world or just doesn't know any better or just, just makes foolish decisions. It's not, a, it's not, a, um, not like a son who's rebellious. It's, it's more just foolishness, okay? Um, and it's shameful for a shepherd to lose a sheep. But at the same time, he goes after the sheep and he, get, and he gets the lamb. I imagine the lamb be like, oh, look at that delicious little clump of, of whatever sheep eat. I'll go over here, and, and oh, I'm just going to wander away. And, oh, look at this bush over here. Look at this butterfly. Oh, my gosh, I'm lost. I'm lost, and I don't know where I am. What am I going to do? Oh, my gosh, I'm just so lost. And I imagine a sheep, you know, falling over a cliff, breaking its leg, and going, I don't know. I'm screwed. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, and they're just really dumb animals, right? That's how I imagine it. So in this, in this um, parable, 
to me, the lamb represents the foolish person, but the shepherd represents Jesus, okay? The shepherd represents Jesus. So in our second parable, the coin, now we go from 1 to 99, we go to 1 to 10. In the Jewish culture, women didn't wear wedding rings. They wore um, coins, a necklace or a headdress of coins made out of 10 coins. So in this picture now, we have a woman who loses probably one of those 10 coins that represents her marriage or her family connection. And now she sweeps the house looking for this coin. Now this coin is an inanimate object. It doesn't know it's lost. It didn't like wander away or anything. It got lost, however it got lost. It's an inanimate object. Um, there's no, it's not, you know, it didn't say to itself, oh, I've got a clump of whatever, you know. So in, the, in this parable, par, <coughs> parable the, the coin represents a person who doesn't know they're lost. Someone who doesn't know they're lost. For example, um, maybe somebody in Africa who's never heard the gospel. They don't know they're lost. They didn't wander away. They didn't do anything. They don't know they're lost. The woman represents God, again, usually in the form of the Holy Spirit. That you're going to see these cool this cool trinity go on. Jesus is the shepherd. The woman represents God again. Some people say the Holy Spirit and take that or leave it. But again, the woman is a picture of God. Searches and searches. And again, she says, when she finds it, she goes, let's have a party. I found my coin. Let's have a party. The third one now, now the third one is where we have a son. The son is more valuable than a coin, the way the coin is more valuable than sheep. Now the son says, give me, your, give me my half of the inheritance, Father, which is essentially saying, I wish you were dead. Shame culture. Shame culture. This is shameful for a son to say, give me, your inheritance while, give me my inheritance while you're alive. Horrible thing to say to your dad. I wish you were dead, but since you're not, give me my half of the inheritance. And the father did it. Gave him his inheritance. Now, now we have a son who deliberately intentionally, with premeditated aforethought, does the wrong thing and, and goes to the faraway land, squanders all his money on bad living, prostitutes, drinking, drugs, gambling, felonies, whatever you would do. Playing cards and dancing. Dancing, gambling, playing rook, whatever. Loses all his money, comes to his senses, begins, and then, and then um, is hired out to feed the pigs, which again, remember, shame, think shame. Pigs are unclean animals in the Jewish culture. So now he's feeding unclean animals that he's not even supposed to touch, and he's feeding them. That's as low as it goes, right? And he comes to his senses. We all love this one. He comes to his senses, and he turns back. And he says, even my father... The servants have something to eat. I'll go back, and I'll at least be a servant and have enough to eat in my father's house. Now, this is where, again, this is where Jesus is sticking it to the, to the um, Pharisees. He's sticking it to the, to the Jewish culture. Because in this parable, he, the father should have disowned him. The father should have disowned him and said, you're dead to me. I can't believe what you've done. You've treated me like crap. I hate you, and I'll never see you again. Let me tell you a little story. Let me tell you a little story. We all know about the transgender and the LGBTQTFML, whatever all that stuff is, right? And um, we all know what a big hot button that is in today's culture. 
and different people handle it differently. You know, there was one mother that when her son had a transgender um, operation, she had a funeral for him. She held a funeral for him and disowned him and said, you are dead to me. You are dead to me. That's kind of what um, the Jewish culture demanded that the father do for the son in this terms of this um, parable. Is he, the father should have adamantly, rigorously denied his son and, and acted as if he was dead. But in this picture, we have a father who is looking, he's, he's looking down the road, thinking to himself, maybe my son will come back. Maybe he'll come back. I miss him so much. I love him so much. He's looking down the road for his son. And when he sees his son, he runs to his son. And his son says, you know, will you accept me back as a servant? And what does he say? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I will not accept you back as a servant. You are my son and restores him back to sonship, ring of authority, sandals, a robe, a fattened calf, restores him not just to, hey, I'll take care of you, let you be a servant, restores him back to sonship. Now here's, here's where we're going to go into our boundaries thing. Notice that in this third thing, God is still very concerned, and the father now represents God, and the son represents the, un, the rebellious unsaved the unsaved who turn their back knowingly on God. So the, the sheep, the foolish unsaved, the coin, the people that don't know they're saved, and the son, the people rebellious unsaved. The, the, the rebellious, the, the big middle finger to the father. Big middle finger. Imagine the pain of that father. And yet he's, his eyes, he's searching for his son. Um... So here's our boundaries lesson in, in this parable. Because God is a God of free will, he allows us to have free will, he cannot make people stay with him. He can't make people love them, love him. He doesn't um, force people to be found, to be Christians and to be all that kind of stuff, but he longs for them. He waits for them. He looks for them. He is ready to restore them to sonship as soon as they come to their senses. Do you understand that? So we can reject God. We have that free will. People have the free will to reject God. But God is relentlessly working and working to bring them to their senses, to bring them to their senses so they will turn back around out of rebellion. And the minute that they do, he runs to them. He, now, see, that is shocking to the Jewish people culture. That's, and how, I mean to ask you, is it shocking to you guys? What if, what if a transgender somebody or other came in here to our little gathering and sat down and worshiped with us, what would our reaction be? Would it be? Here's my challenge, you guys. If we're going to, if we're, there's three kinds of people in this world. You remember how um, Brian Fenimer defined it? I'm going to define it a little bit differently. There's three kinds of people. There's three kinds of people. I'm going all over the place. There's those who know God and live for him. 
know God, have committed their life and say, he is Lord of my life. I am a bond slave. I commit myself to him for the rest of my life. He is going to determine how I live, how I act, how I breathe. He is going to change my paradigm. That's one kind of person. The second kind of person is those who know God and don't live for him. I know about God, but I ain't living for him. I'm not changing the way I, the way I do things. I'm not changing the way I think. I'm not submitting myself to him. I know he exists, but I don't give a crap about him. And I'm not gonna, I am not going to have anything to do with having a changed life. And the third person is those who don't know God and don't live for him. So you've got three choices. Who are you going to be? Are you going to be someone who knows God and lives for him? Are you going to be somebody who knows God and doesn't live for him? Or doesn't know God and doesn't live for him? Who are you going to be? That's a hard word, then. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. My point is, we got to get real, people. This is not a game we're playing. I've been sick for four freaking months. That's not a game. That's the enemy. That's the enemy. This isn't, a, this isn't we live in a real, we, we live in a real battle. In a real, this is a real battle we live in. We got to get a hold of foundational principles if we're going to have victory. Otherwise, we are nothing but a clanging gong. We are nothing. We are just Pharisees. People that are lost and don't know it. And so, I'm just, I'm not willing to play at Christianity. Hey, Chip, you love this, don't you? This is good, huh? <laughs> I'm not willing to play at pretending to follow God. I want to really follow God. And that means we've got to change the way we think. We've got, we got, got to change about the way we think about unlovely people. Um, get going back to the gay theme. There was one woman I just recently heard about who, um, whose son was gay, and she didn't know how to do it. She was a Christian. And she, I think she ran a... Um, she ran one of those programs where they try to pray the gay out of you. Now, please understand, I'm not saying homosexuality is acceptable, but I'm just talking about this, this is our culture. We've got to have some hard conversations about this. And what, who would Jesus be hanging out with if he was here today? Where would he be? Um, anyway, her son was, is gay, and she didn't know what to do with it. But she decided she was going to go down to um, the, the gay March or whatever that thing is, and she has a little sticker that said, free hugs, free mama hugs. That's all it says, free mama hugs. And all these people would come over, and she hugged people all day long and stood in his proxy for their parents and just hugged them. And just hugged them. And so I'm just going to, I'm throwing out some challenges to you tonight, you guys. Um, I believe that these parables demonstrate to us God's heart for the lost. Now, when they come to be Christians, we'll let the Holy Spirit deal with their crap. Mm -hmm. Okay? I'm not saying they don't have crap in their life. I'm not saying they don't have um, sin in their life. I'm not denying the power of sin. But what I'm saying is we have to start with the place of God's heart if we're going to look at this unsaved world. That's what I'm saying. We have got to look through the eyes of God. And he's told us right here in these three parables how much he loves the lost whether they know they're lost or don't know they're lost, whether they're in rebellion or not in rebellion, whether they're stupid and foolish or not, he loves them. We have got to get to that place where that affects every core and fiber of our being. Otherwise, I'm going to finish it up with this. I don't even have my last page, so I'm just going to finish it up with this. 
The end of this, the end of this parable, and, they, and a lot of people say this is a fourth parable. This is about the older son. So we've got the younger son comes in, and you know he's been squandering all his money, and the father's like, let's have a party. My son is back. He was dead. Well, now the older son's not happy. Now the older son, who was out working in the field when his father returned, when his brother returned, and as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. So he called over one of the servants and asked, what's going on? The servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned home, and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father came out and pleaded with him, come and enjoy the feast with us. The son said, father, listen, how many years have I been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son, and I've never once disobeyed you, but you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate my friends like he's doing now. But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living, and here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. The father says, my son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to celebrate like this and be, in, be overjoyed because this brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he is alive and back with us again. He was lost, but now he is found. So that was a little bit, that was directly, a, those people, the older son represents the Pharisees and the religious, peop, the religious people of the time. God was saying, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours, and yet you're still unhappy because you want to have a judgment against this person over here who's, who I'm bringing, who was dead and is now alive. And so I, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying to you guys, you guys is this. You're like, we were watching that Zero Dark Thirty last night, and they're, you know, waterboarding that whatever guy terrorist guy, you know. And I'm like, Chris, fast forward through, I just can't handle it, you know. And, and I was just thinking about all the different, um, I was just thinking about the, the different cultures and the different, you know, the, the enmity there is between the, you know, there's the, the Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews that all lived together, well, this is in Beirut, in Beirut, and just how, how much animosity and, and, and all, how there's been so much violence in the Middle East for so long. It just never stops. And we're always trying to get in there with the government and do something and it never works, right? And I'm like, it's time to do something different in this world. It's, it, our ways don't work. Our government ways don't work. Everyone's smoking cigarettes and alcoholic and drug addicts because they can't handle the stress of this world. Because it, the way the world does things doesn't work. Our government system doesn't work. Thanks for coming. So it's time we do things a different way if we're going to like make an impact on this world. We have got to get hold of God's heart. We have got to come into agreement with God's heart on everything. Not just our church stuff, not just one day a week stuff. Every single thing we do has to be with God's heart. Immigration, ah! Gay people, ah! political stuff, ah, all of that stuff has to go through the filter of God's heart for this world. I don't care how you vote. Submit it to the filter of God's heart for this world. That's what I'm saying to you. Do you submit it? Do you say, God, how do you see these people? 
What do you want me to do? What is my response here? That's all I'm saying we need to do is always remember God's filter for the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, that none should perish. Amen.